Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the uh, great Christian thinkers of church history past. And uh, it is Tuesday, so that means I have John O'Hara with me. John, great to have you with me another Tuesday. Great to be here another Tuesday, Joe. So, John, this evening we have the opportunity to talk about St. John Damascene, uh, another doctor of the Church, and uh, it really uh, caught my attention this morning that um, we've talked about a number of doctors of the Church, and we really haven't talked about what is a doctor. Huh? So what is a doctor? Well, doctor of the Church, uh, well, let us first remember that the word doctor, docere, in the Latin means to teach. So a doctor of the Church is a saint who offered in uh, his or her preaching uh, and or teaching a great insight into Orthodox teaching. Uh, one of the characteristics, John, of a doctor of the Church is the relevance of their insight through time. Uh, often what we find when we read uh, the teachings and the writings of a doctor of the Church is how their writing and their insights transcend time. Very important for us this evening because with St. John Damascene, certainly uh, his insights into how we think about icons have transcended time and are very relevant today. You know, I said we've talked about church fathers because, you know, the first four doctors of the church that were declared by, I believe, um, Boniface VIII in uh, 1295 were St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and St. Gregory the Great. So on that day, uh, back in, on September 20th, uh, 1295, Boniface VIII declared those four men the first four doctors of the church. Now, just by way of footnote, uh, St. John Paul the Great, for as many saints as he canonized John, he only declared one doctor, and I believe this to be of great importance and relevance today, that, of course, being St. Tres de Lisieux. Now, you think of St. Tres de Lisieux, and you don't think doctor of the church, but remember, I use the word insight, and I don't know if there's any uh, one greater insight for us today than to appreciate the spirituality of St. Tres of Lisieux, um, which was all about the little way, embracing the minutia of, of all that God puts before us, and offer those little things to God. Uh, that's what lies at the heart of St. Tres of Lisieux. Now, it's not that she didn't give us more than the little way, certainly she did, and in her writings and in her thoughts and in her diary, uh, she gives us many pearls of wisdom. Uh, how about Benedict XVI? He declared two doctors, St. John of Avila and St. Hildegard of Bringen. So there's a couple more doctors there. But you can uh, well imagine, John, that doctors of the Church are rare. Okay, St. John Paul the Great, one. Benedict XVI, two. I think you and I have noted that uh, Fulton Sheen, it's been talked about, Cardinal Newman, but it, this is a rare thing. I think Pope Paul VI made St. Teresa of Avila, a doctor of the Church, and also St. Catherine of, I can't think of her name because I'm getting older, uh, from Gath Siena, St. Catherine of Siena, Siena. yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah. had a doctor of the Church. Now, <clears throat> if you want to get back to St. Catherine of Siena, I'm not sure she could write. She had an amanuensis uh, who did that. Mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila, very bright woman, CEO, again, these women 
didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, Therese of Lisieux does not have a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, she knew her stuff. I mean, remember, she was canonized within 25 years of her death. She writes this thing, and it's mainly a little interior document, mm-hmm. which gets redone and redone. And I mean, it's a bestseller five mm-hmm. years after her death throughout the world. Yeah. So yeah, she had something to say. Yeah, insight. I mean, that is the <clears throat> key word, insight, and, and in light of that, wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are men and women of the faith, saints, who offer for us uh, wisdom into how to uh, be better stewards in our faith and how to understand and defend our faith. So um, they're not infallible. We're not saying that these saints are infallible, but uh, they were saints. They were men and women who, if they fell down, they picked themselves back up again in the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and all of these saints, all of these doctors of the Church that we have been talking about, were all deeply moved, of course, by the Holy Spirit. And as I speak to this, John, of course, St. John Damascene is in that category. He is indeed. Uh, moved by the Holy Spirit, an agent of the Holy Spirit in so many ways. St. John uh, was born in 657 and died in 749, lived a long life. With all of our saints, the date of birth is a bit questionable. The date of death is pretty certain. And he was born in a wealthy family in Damascus, Syria, which has been in the news a lot lately. And uh, as Mm -hmm. now, back then, it was controlled by Muslims. Uh, That faith spread by military conquest, and they were in charge of Syria. However, the persecutions were not, while they were there, were not that shall we say, bad. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, St. John Damascene's father was the chief financial officer of the headman of Syria, the caliphate of Syria. And uh, and John Damascene himself became the chief financial officer uh, after his father died or retired. That job seems to have been passed on from father to son. I also might note that there were many Jews living in that area, and they were doctors, and the caliphate's doctor was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway... Uh, and they, they, they you, you could do quite well. You had to pay a little more taxes if you weren't a Muslim. But anyway, you could, you know, you weren't being beheaded. Mm-hmm. Anyway, St. John Damascene, um, his father bought a slave, a Sicilian slave named, named Cosmos. Now, this guy was really well-educated. And he brought him into uh, Damascus, and he educated John. And John had a good friend whom they named Cosmos after the, we'll call him a slave, teacher, and uh, th- John got a really good education from this guy, a Latin Greek, Greek was as close to his native tongue, and then he became chief financial officer, and about 700, he's now in his, let's say, meh, 40s, this life is not for him, and uh, he leaves the worldly life, and he goes to a monastery called uh, Mount Saba, I believe, in Jerusalem, or close mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. We've and, heard this story before, huh, John? Yeah, I mean, right. when I was reading about St. John, John Damascene leaving the worldly life so as to enter monastic life. I mean, this is a tune we have heard before, and I just interject this now. I mean, I really think we need to pay close attention to this, and I really want to uh, really pause for our listening audience to encourage our listening audience to think about this, because I think this is something we haven't spent enough time with. You know, We live in a world today that has us pulled in so many different directions that makes it so difficult for us to be present to God and God alone. Now, are we all called to the monastic life? Are we all called to leave the world? No. No, we need to be in God for other, and for many of us, that's to be in the world. But if there's anything that these saints teach us, John, as as you were talking about him, and as I'm reminded of it, it's to go deeper in our faith 
so as to bring God into the world. And if we're called to, to the monastic life, then we go there. But to bring God into the world, this is what the new evangelization is about, to bring the wonder and the beauty of God into the rustle and bustle of the world, to remind people who they are and, and who they belong to. Uh, this is a great challenge we have before us, John, um, and something that we need to start thinking about more, especially in a world that just has us so darn busy, John, you know? Peter Kraft, a man whom I respect hugely, mm, mm. philosophy professor at Boston College, Ditto. Uh, wrote a book he's written about, I don't know how many books he's written, called How to Win the Culture Wars. Mm-hmm. Well, in brief, how do you win the culture war? You become a saint. Mm-hmm. People notice you. Mm-hmm. How do you become a saint? Well, humility and holiness and take a look at St. John Damascene. This guy was educated before he ever entered the monastery. He mm-hmm. knew Greek. He knew he'd read all of the classics. Mm-hmm. He goes into the monastery, and what? And the, this monastery, by the way, you lived in a hut, and I think you grew your food in the ground around your hut, yes. and then you met and uh, for, for liturgy with the other monks, and you prayed that way, then you would go back to your hut mm-hmm. and pray. So... Uh, he goes to this monastery where he prays. There's your holiness, there's your humility, mm-hmm. and he goes into assises. Assises is a kind of a fancy word which means self-discipline and uh, rigorous training and self-discipline is what yeah. assises yeah. kind of means to yeah. me. So you got to become a saint. Now, how do you affect, how do you win the culture war? We, Christians, Catholics, become saints. That doesn't mean we got to go find ISIS to be beheaded. It means we, we just lead a life which is clearly Christian, and we also know our faith because people are going to bombard you with, you believe what? Yeah. Now, let me just say one last thing before I be quiet. Everybody has a religion. Secular atheists have a religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as St. Anselm said, faith is, I mean, religion is faith-seeking understanding. If That's you're right. an atheist, that faith comes first. If you're a Catholic, that faith comes first. Then you try to seek the understanding to support it. Mm-hmm. So what is the basis of their faith? What is the basis of our faith? What is there, where does that belief come from? Because mm-hmm. your belief colors your entire life. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, that fides corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. And, you know, you, you make the point there, how do you win the culture wars? You, you be attractive, right? <laughs> you be set apart. The word holiness literally means to be, to be set apart. What does that mean for you and I, John? That means that you don't blend in. You go against the grain. Everyone wants to just fall in line with keeping up with the Joneses. Yes. You know, we need to get out of that line and be set apart, be noticed for all of the right reasons, which means, of course, uh, not being concerned about being noticed, huh? And as we've noted before, John, we live in, in an age where there is a great deal of darkness, but the more darkness there is, the brighter our light shines. And that's just so important. And certainly, this is true of St. John Damascene, right? I mean, St. John was a man of great holiness, uh, and he was a man who offered for us great insight into an area, John, that we talked about last week, okay? Uh, Hermanus of Constantinople, a man who uh, was a defender against iconoclasm, as we talked about it last week. We talked about relics, we talked about images. Well, St. John Damascene is a doctor of the Church, John, because of his insights and his deeper understanding of how we are called to understand uh, the icon. You know, he made the distinction, one of his great contributions was the distinction he made between worship and veneration. Yes. Uh, We have to appreciate the historical context here, John, 
uh, part of the contention was the Old Testament vision yep. of the golden calf. And after the golden calf, uh, what it meant to uh, worship an image or how it was understood then. In his distinction between worship and veneration, he was uh, making clear the point that you have two different things going on. In the veneration, um, you're not worshiping the image itself, you're honoring the presence of God in that image, and not in some sort of inappropriate way, but in most in its most simple terms, in a way that might reckon its due honor. Let's just simplify this for our listening audience. Why do we have a picture of a loved one in our hallway, a family or a friend? Well, we remember them. And in doing so, it, it gives us a better understanding of, of who we are and where we are going. I think we talked about this in the first few weeks yeah. of our radio program. Why do you study history? You know, we talked about the importance of images. Well, we bring a little bit of that back into our conversation now, because to remember them is to have conversation with the past. And in having that conversation with the past, in linking ourselves with who we belong to, we really do get a better understanding of who we are and where we're going. Well, we have a spiritual pedigree here, okay, yeah. and uh, a spiritual family. And those saints and those doctors of the Church who have come before us, John, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we have image of, images of them in our house— I had a, a good friend come into my home about a month ago, and he saw this image of a saint, St. Maximilian Colby, and it rubbed him a, a little bit the wrong way, and so he asked about it, and we had a great conversation, and we were talking about the very thing we're talking about right now. We honor uh, them you know, as our brothers and sisters. And when I look at a picture of St. Maximilian Colby, I'm reminded of the greatness of his yes in Auschwitz. Okay, in the concentration camp, and it inspires me. I don't worship him, right? No, I honor him. I have that conversation with the past, and it makes me a better person. God bless St. Maximilian Kolbe. Amen. Great I was yeah. able to visit that place in Poland where he was for a while, and also Auschwitz, where he died. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just would like to, again, get off track. I will occasionally watch uh, the O'Reilly Report. He has a guy named Waters on there for Waters World. This yes. guy gets these yeah. characters on. <laughs> I've Yesterday before, it was yeah. President's Day, so we had asked these people at a beach, okay, who is this president? They did not know mm. history. If you do not know your history, you're like having Alzheimer's in the time you live in. You don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't want to go through my life like that, and I don't want to go through my religious life, which is hugely important to me, like that. Therefore, I need to take time to investigate my religion. You know, I think all of our churches have lost members, be it Protestant, even Catholic, because they don't really know their faith. Mm. And uh, I would really encourage our listeners, investigate your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and and, and And that's why we do what we do here, John, every Tuesday evening, from one saint to the next, from one great Christian thinker and doctor of the church to the next. It's just a get into that history uh, so you can have that conversation. And we are hardly scratching the surface, quite honestly, yeah. each and every Tuesday, but scratching the surface nonetheless to help us in that conversation. Uh, that being said, John, it is always important to get in some of the words of these great thinkers themselves, and I thought maybe we can read just a bit here. This is St. John Damascene. He wrote three discourses that were very important in the world of uh, better understanding images and how we are to understand them theologically, philosophically. And so certainly of uh, hot topic was what we were just talking about as it relates to 
uh, the Old Testament understanding, the Old Testament prohibition against the use of cult images. So he was responding to this, and this is what he has to say. In other ages, God had not been represented in images, being incorporate and faceless. But since God has now been seen in the flesh and lived among men, I represent that part of God which is visible. I do not venerate matter, but the creator of matter, who became matter for my sake, and deigned to live in matter and bring about my salvation through matter. I will not cease, therefore, to venerate that matter through which my salvation was achieved, but I do not venerate it in absolute terms as God. That's very important. Yes, uh, John. So that's the whole point. It really is. It's when you look at these images, they are not ends in, of themselves, but a means to an end. And as we talked about it last week, an image, an icon, is a window into another reality. And that's what he's talking about here. He goes on. How could that which, from non-existence, has been given existence be God? But I also venerate and respect all the rest of matter which has brought me salvation, since it is full of energy and holy graces. I love that line. Yes. Is not the wood of the cross three times blessed matter? And the ink and the most holy book of the Gospels, are they not matter? The, the redeeming altar which dispenses the bread of life, is it not matter? And before all else, are not the flesh and blood of our Lord matter? Either we must suppress the sacred nature of all these things, or we must concede to the tradition of the church, the veneration of the images of God, and that of the friends of God who are sanctified by the name they bear, and for this reason are possessed by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Do not therefore offend matter. It is not contemptible, because nothing that God has made is contemptible. Correct. That reminds me a little bit of the Arianism controversy we went through. Yes, Matter yes. is important. Yes, very <clears throat> much so. Very much so. So, and Benedict XVI goes on to speak to this beautifully, that as a result of the Incarnation, matter is seen to have become divine, is seen as the habitation of God. It is a new vision of the world and of material reality. God became flesh, and flesh became truly the habitation of God, whose glory shines in the human face of Christ. Yes. Now, Amen. Uh, Benedict also says, near where you were reading, he talks about the epiclesis in the Mass, mm. where the priest puts his hand over the chalice and the bread. This is matter. All this is at this point in the Mass is bread and wine. Mm -hmm. And he asks the Holy Spirit to come down on this matter and by the power of God make the transformation. Amen. And substantiation. Yes, very important point there, John. And I think as we talk about this, it's it's really uh, important to pull back a little bit and, and appreciate what he's saying here, because in what he's saying, there is direct relevance for us today, uh, because <laughs> we have taken the matter, our flesh, and we are being drawn into, John, this kind of bestiality of the flesh. Yeah. Matter is to be sanctified. Our flesh is to be sanctified. Uh, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and as such, we are to see them for what they are as created in the image and likeness of God, not turn them into something that would become almost that which would belong to an inappropriate worship and a kind of occultic worship. We see this overemphasis on the flesh today, John. Oh, yes. It really is just striking to go downtown and see all of the body piercing and oh. the like. And uh, we have to be 
careful to, while we uh, talk about the importance of matter, that we don't put an overemphasis on matter, that we, we see our flesh, our flesh as uh, uh, that which belongs to God. And I speak to this because what's the great passage from Romans 12, verses 1 to 3? That our very lives become a spiritual worship, a holy and acceptable offering to God. Yes. Um, that our very bodies in the flesh, Paul would want us to see, uh, we offer our lives to God, that each and every uh, thing we do and everything that we belong to, every encounter we have be an offering to God. Part of that is about the flesh, because uh, we are vested with the flesh. And uh, so this whole idea of sanctifying matter means that we are called to sanctify the flesh, and we do this in the Spirit and our offering to God in all that we do. Let me read a little bit uh, from the Liturgy of the Hours for his feast day, which, by the way, is December December 4th. 4th, yes. And this is just a small paragraph, take about 20 seconds. And he's talking about the Church. And you, O Church, our most excellent assembly, the noble summit of perfect unity, whose assistance comes from God, you in whom God lives, receive from us an exposition of the faith that is free from error to strengthen the Church, just as our fathers handed it down to us. Now, this guy, St. John Damascene, is Orthodox. Mm. He wrote in about the Incarnation, the Assumption of Mary, uh, about the Trinity, baptism, the sacraments. All of this was important to him, and he wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And he took, you know, the, the Church of St. John Damascene is pretty much the church we have today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about the sacraments there, John. The sacraments were very important to him. Yes. Um, and you can begin to see that beautiful glove ball fit between everything we have talked about up to this point and the sacramental life when you start talking about the sanctification of matter, right? Because right. the sacramental life is, you know, the, the, the human and the divine coming together. Uh, and what he would want us to see, that is St. John Damazine, is how we are called to allow images, allow the sacramental life, water, oil, the bread of life, to evangelize the imagination, and in doing so, uh, have something um, stir within us so as to go deeper into our participation in the life of God. Now, there was certainly an emphasis on this in the liturgy. We talked a little bit about this last week, the actuoso participatio, the, the active participation, and how we look upon the, the altar of life with the bread of life and, and the, the church itself, and we allow all of these images to evangelize our imagination, to really encourage and stimulate a deeper participation in the wonder that is the Mass, this, this heavenly celebration, this heavenly festival. This was very much uh, at the heart of St. John Damascene. And this is why, again, John, he is a doctor of the Church, because this kind of thing transcends time. When you start talking about the sanctification of matter and uh, the sacramental life, you mentioned the Incarnation. Well, of course he would have talked about the Incarnation, because the Incarnation is the theological principle that rests at the heart of everything we were talking about, as Benedict XVI just talked about. So all of this uh, widely important for us today as uh, we seek to be evangelized ourselves so that we might go out and, and evangelize others, mindful of what he talks about, mindful that we have to put beauty first. Yeah. And remember what we talked about. When you talk about the stuff of God and the transcendentals, it's, it's truth, beauty, and goodness. 
And uh, when you lead with beauty, you lead with that uh, capacity that evangelizes the imagination. I mean, I don't care who you are. Um, when you're uh, driving along the road and uh, you see a rainbow, you don't question the beauty of the rainbow. You just behold and you marvel and you wonder uh, of the beauty of the rainbow. You don't sit there and say, John, well, I think the rainbow should have this shade of color or that shade of color. No, 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 no. Beauty just captivates you. And with St. John Damascene, and when he's talking about the veneration of holy images, uh, he's talking about that which is to captivate us. Yeah. When we walk into a church, any church, we uh, the liturgy is huge. The liturgy should correspond with our creed and our belief. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. Mm. The liturgy of Ash Wednesday is just part of something I have always enjoyed from the time mm. I was a kid. Mm. And... Mm. Uh, it brings me closer to God, the liturgy that, that I walk into in my church. It is very important mm-hmm. because I am matter. Yeah. Amen. And, and how about the, the ashes on our forehead, right? The sign of the cross with ashes, another symbol. Remember, right. man, that you are dust, and unto mm-hmm. dust you will return. Yes, amen. And uh, another uh, way in which the church in a liturgical celebration reminds us who we are and where we're going through matter, right? <laughs> This is so important. One last thing, John, before we wrap up our time together this evening, and that is the didactic nature of these icons, uh, more specifically Byzantine art. Uh, by didactic, I mean uh, to teach, the teaching nature of these icons. Earlier, I was talking about what the word doctor means, you know, from the Latin docere, meaning to teach. Well, icons are uh, put together so as to teach some aspect of, of the faith through images, through symbols, through signs. Often, what you see in an icon is the way in which a particular saint, or maybe it's, it's a symbol of the true cross, is captured by something of the historical context. Uh, for example, I'm thinking of maybe an icon of uh, St. Francis, uh, the skull uh, on the desk, okay? The way in which St. Francis of Assisi always had uh, death before him. Well, this skull represents death, huh? So, very important. Now, if we are finding this difficult to understand, let's think about this for a second. Earlier, John, I noted the importance of the pictures that we have hanging up in our hallways. Well, often in a picture, you will find something in that picture. Now, whether it was intended to be there or not to capture the essence of that time, it's there nonetheless. So you look at a picture and you see what is in the background, what is in the backdrop, and it draws you in to just not maybe who the person is, but also the time period. Again, icons do the same thing. They draw us in in the many rich symbols. If you are someone who is a painter, an artist, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Every color, every shade, every symbol, uh, every little etching, it means something. And certainly with icons, they meant something, everything on an icon, and they were very intentional to teach some aspect of the faith. Maybe just not about the person, but maybe something about the sacramental life. Maybe it's the image of the Eucharist next to manna, because the Eucharist is the new man. okay? This is the kind of thing that you would see in icons. So, very important, John. I would hate to miss that when talking about images, especially Byzantine uh, art and Anyhow, John, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. So thanks again for joining me for another Tuesday evening where we 
continue our reflections into these great thinkers and how they give us more things to think about in our journey of faith. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.